but I don't think that yeah. the, it is now canon as the greatest show ever made because the first episode did well. I I mean, some of the hype I've heard, people are like saying that, and I I yeah. sure, but they're nerds. Um, Those are nerds, Keith. Yeah. Welcome to another episode of the MacGuffin Podcast, a movie review podcast that dreams are made of. Keith Foster on the West Coast, San Diego, California. Yes, and you are Cassidy Robinson. You are recording from an undisclosed location in the Rocky Mountains. And today we will be discussing the film Megan, a Bloomhouse horror film that released a few weeks ago, garnered some sort of internet buzz. And at the end of the podcast for our streaming homework, we were going to review Grandma's Boy on Hulu, but that is no longer on the streaming service. Changed over when the month, when the year flipped over. So we will now be discussing the 1985 Chevy Chase comedy Fletch, which I've never seen before. Have you? No. No, I just know it's. One of his uh, bigger star vehicles. Mm-hmm. Oh, and it's it's one of those movies that definitely has, like, its cult following. And so I've always been kind of curious, you know, just as a fan of comedy to see what it's all about. So I figured, eh, let's, let's do that instead. Um, trade one comedy for another. Right. And I believe there is a Fletch sequel that's either out or coming out. Starring John Hamm. Yeah, it came out last year. I guess it was, I think it was a Showtime original. So unfortunately, like, it hasn't had the biggest audience. But I've heard it's actually pretty good and, and kind of a shame that, you know, it didn't get a more of its due. So John Hamm seemed like, it seems like the type of role that would be good for him. Yeah, yeah. Seems like the type of thing he would have pitched for himself. Uh, yeah, or, you know, one of his friends, because he has a lot of friends in the comedy world, would be like, you know what? You should do Fletch. Right. Yeah, I should do Fletch. <laughs> um, I, that was. I guess that's John Hammond. Yeah. Before we get started here, all that's really happening online as far as the chatter goes. Uh, everyone's watching The Last of Us, which I suppose is based on a video game. And <laughs> some people are saying this is the best video game adaptation. I don't know if that's damning with faint praise or if that's an actual point to be proud of. Um, although, you know, so the, the Witcher did kind of well, right? People like that. Yes, but... Witcher is originally a book series, so the video games were based on a book. So, mm. you know, is that an adaptation of a game, or is it an adaptation of the books? You know, and it, it's kind of both. Yeah, so the show kind of gets to pick and choose its source material a little more freely. Um, so I watched the first episode of The Last of Us. It is 
people are calling it the best video game adaptation of all time. It is also a, like the highest rated streaming show right now as far like it has a higher score than like Breaking Bad and shit right now, which I'm like, come on, that's a little silly. Like it's been one episode. Uh, you yeah. know what I mean? Like, I mean, I think by the time this this podcast is out, there will have been at least two, if not already. But uh, I know that people were very excited about it for like three days on Twitter. All I saw were people talking about The Last of Us. And for some reason in my head, maybe I was confusing it with Why the Last Man, which also got adapted. The uh, Yeah, but that's, uh, the comic that's already book. canceled. Okay. Yeah. So for some reason in my head, I thought The Last of Us was also a comic book. And then I realized or found out that it was a... A video game. Like, The Last of Us is... I've never played the game, but from what I understand, it's very narrative-driven. To me, again, it makes sense. I did watch the first episode. I thought it was fine. Um, I I thought it was good, even. I will say it's good. The the opening sequence, uh, like, the first half of it is amazing, right? Like, there's... There's this very um, slow build to to kind of show the end of the world. And there's this very long, like, action shot in a truck. All of that is incredible. Um, just the way things take their time and unfold. Then there's this time jump to the post-apocalypse. And at that point, I thought it was a little boring. You know, at that point, we're getting into a lot of world building. We're getting into a lot of, uh, well, this is the Firefly clan and this is Fedra and blah, blah, blah. And I'm, you know, oh, we need you to smuggle this into this city that's a disaster, you know, like, and it was fine. It, It wasn't bad. It wasn't like all of a sudden I was like, well, this is dog shit now. You know, it's, it's a little jarring to go from this insane action scene to now we're world building and doing the exposition stuff and they do that well you know and i'm excited to see where it goes this is the first episode like of course not everything is gonna unfold uh i do think people are being a little insane how hyped it is people talking about it being the best show ever it was good it was a good first episode uh i am intrigued i want to know more I'm not super into zombies, so now that we're in the, like... And I I know they're, like, fungus zombies, but they're still, like, zombies. Uh, Now that we're in that world, I'm a little more hesitant. I'm getting, like, Walking Dead vibes, but kind of like Walking Dead as it should have been, if that makes sense. I Yeah, I mean, I think Walking Dead... I hopped off around episode, like, four or five or so of season one. I know people stuck with it a lot longer than I did, but I, I kind of saw it going in a direction I just didn't care about. And so I, I lost interest. But, I mean, I would say the first, at least the full pilot, was interesting. <laughs> yeah, I mean, the first season was fine. I um I watched through season three i didn't enjoy a lot of that though i remember the first season i felt like was solid but it was only like six episodes or something it was pretty short 
in the case of uh, The Last of Us, wherein you've started the show, but you've never played the game, does it inspire you to pick up the game? Well, I, this is one of those games that <laughs> I feel like I'm being uh, interviewed by uh, <laughs> IGN or something. Um, yeah, I'm, I'm not even like asking you to have uh, official opinions on any of this. All I'm saying is I read the stuff as people are talking about it. I just wondered what the big deal was. <laughs> yeah, well, it, it is one of those games that I have heard for a long time. I like I need to play. Um, it came out like when the PS4 first came out and I didn't get my PlayStation 4 until much, much, much later. And I, I don't have a whole lot of games for it even still. So it's just one of those ones that like, I know I should just pick up for $10 or whatever. Cause I, I'm sure it would be amazing. And you know, maybe someday I will. Um, this does make me more interested in it. Like, I can see how some of this world would, might be a little more fun right. to be like fully immersed in as the character versus watching as a TV show. But well, I maybe think, you know, the reason I, I ask is because maybe the reason people are losing their shit over the first episode is because they've been fans of the game for a long time and they're doing it really well, even though. You have you don't have that context. Oh, I absolutely think that's the case. And I'm very excited for those people. I don't I still think it's a little hasty to call it the best show ever made. Um, I don't know if anyone is. I think it's just, you know, because like, let's say episode two or three, whatever comes out and it dips in quality noticeably, the ratings and stuff are going to reflect that as well. So I Every show that has a halfway decent opening or pilot gets that initial hype bump. But I don't think that yeah. the, it is now canon as the greatest show ever made because the first episode did well. I I mean, some of the hype I've heard, people are like saying that. And I, I sure. But they're nerds. Um, Those are nerds, Keith. Yeah. But in and in that respect, um, you know, I remember when we finally got the Dark Knight, and you know what I mean. Like, so I understand that excitement of of that, like, oh yes, this is it. The, you know, this is finally it. Or when the fucking first Spider Man movie came out. But those are you movies. You know what I mean? Keith. Like, so those are uh, movies. Yeah. So I mean, you know, but. But they were still you go, you watch the Right. But you go, you watch the movie. It is now, the story has been completed. You have seen the movie. Whereas a, a, a TV show, it's an ongoing, living, breathing thing. So My point is, I, I understand the hype. But, uh, I mean, I, okay. I don't know if anybody's opinions are fully formed. That's all I'm saying. Well, let's let's compare it to Game of Thrones then, right? Like when Game of Thrones came out, uh, our my uh, my buddy Ted, who is a, is a listener of the show, hi Ted. Um, he he was like, "Hey, you have to check out Game of Thrones." Oh, I'm gonna do my my Ted impression. Hey, buddy, have you heard of Game of Thrones? You need to check it out. And I was like, <laughs> "So okay, the lot like, like you're John Hamm." <laughs> I mean, in in my head, they're comparable. <laughs> uh, 
But so he told us about it. He had been a a, a book reader for like since they had been coming out. Uh-huh. Um, you know, and we had to like he watched basically the whole first season with us. But he he like watched the whole first season with us and like broke down all the characters and you know all that stuff. So like I am I am certain that he probably felt a similar sense of excitement. All right. Well, I I don't really care about zombies, so I don't see myself watching it now that you've told me that that's part of it. Unless I hear a lot more uh, positive things, especially as the show continues. I I will say um, it is a very unique take on zombies. I have heard them described more as fungus monsters than zombies. So if there's like some cool creature design which from the trailers it seems like there might be um i i think it's a little more than just a zombie thing so i i will i will give it that credit but tonally it is definitely borrowing heavily from the zombie genre all right all right yeah Um, post-apocalyptic zombie it feels a little eight years ago but we'll see yes i have the same hesitation with it but the first episode was good enough, and uh, I mean, Pedro Pascal, he can yeah. be in everything. He, he's good in everything. Yeah, he kind of is in everything right now. All right. Yeah. Let's go ahead and start reviewing <laughs> Megan. As we were leaving the movie, I made a joke like, well, what will they call the third one? Um, and then I was like, oh, well, they'll definitely call the sequel Megan 2.0. And then uh, literally a day ago, I saw a a thing, a a news report saying that it's been greenlit for a sequel and it will be called Megan 2.0. And I just laughed. So Megan is a new film uh, that was released by Bloomhouse. It's directed by uh, the New Zealand director, Gerard Johnstone. Did a horror comedy I saw a while back called Housebound kind of had a cult following and uh we have a story about a girl named katie played by violet mcgraw whose parents die in an accident and she is uh sent to live with her her mother's sister played by allison williams named uh, gemma and her aunt is a a uh, researcher and scientist at a robotics company that specializes in making AI-generated toys. Uh, they've just had a success with a sort of Furby-like invention that uh, you play with alongside an iPad and help program it. Um, but they're trying to uh, figure out a way to make something in that style, but cost less because on the horizon they see a competitor putting out something, a ripoff version of it for cheaper. Uh, however, a prototype for a new life-size doll called Megan, uh, Gemma's been working on that in the background, and she believes if she can get her bereaved niece to become emotionally attached uh, with this doll that she can convince her bosses that 
they should spend more on mass-producing the Megan doll rather than um, coming up with a, a cheaper version of their... What was the thing called? It's not Furby, but it's basically Furby. Something perfect pet or something like that? Yeah. Per- perpetual pet. Perpetual pet, yeah. It's like Furby that uh, responds to you a little bit more acutely and also makes fake poop. <laughs> um, so she brings home this Megan doll and her niece begins to share more and more with it. And the AI chip that's installed has a, a lot of learning capabilities and is quickly able to be the guardian that uh, Allison Williams character doesn't have the time to be. Uh, and sort of fill that void, that emotional void that was left by her parents' untimely demise. Um, But maybe also learning a little too much, a little too fast, out of control of her programmers. But Housebound, which I don't know if you've seen, did you see that movie? No. So Housebound was a horror comedy, very much in the style of the New Zealand horror comedy. So if you like films like What We Do in the Shadows or Black Sheep, um, not the uh, Chris Farley one about elections, but the one about uh, killer sheep. Mm-hmm. Um, or even, you know, something like Hunt for the Wilder People. Um, it has that sort of sensibility to it. Uh, sort of quirky. Very quirky. Yes. And I think there's an attempt, even though this is a very American story, there's no uh, New Zealand actors, this takes place in America. Um, He sort of brings that sensibility into this. So this is bordering horror comedy, if not straight up horror comedy in in a lot of ways. Yeah, there's a lot of uh, there's a lot of humorous sort of cutaways there's a, a lot there's there's some good um joke setups a lot of character comedian actors yeah um, there's a lot and there's a lot of broad satire of the ai toy industrial complex and mm-hmm. and i think you know there's there's obvious sort of commentary here about kids and devices and, you know, throwing an iPad into your three-year-old's hands instead of raising them. And, and then, you know, us not really having the way of comprehending what the long-term effects of that will be with them being under the control of algorithms that have nothing to do with, uh, you know, any sort of parental direction. Um, there's that sort of commentary that's very obvious here, but there's also a lot of child's play uh esque commentary about the commerciality of of marketing towards children and creating that idea of like we're making friends for your kids and and how to rope them in emotionally into product and into uh commerciality mm-hmm. and and I think it does a pretty good job at Finding that balance between 
doing a Bloomhouse horror film with with a kill count and and trying to stay somewhat creepy, but also having a lot of goofy fun where they can. Yeah. I also think it's worth noting the main writer was uh, Akila Cooper, mm-hmm. who was also one of the writers, one of the main writers for Malignant. Um, yes. Uh, which was directed by James Wan. This is produced by James Wan. Um, you know, I think because tonally, I th- I think it is doing kind of similar things with genre of, mm. of you know, like taking this sort of killer toy genre and and having fun with that, uh, finding w- ways to justify it and play with it, um, the, you know, the same way Malignant did. So I think that's an interesting aspect of this as well, is, is this kind of newer trend for James Wan is sort of satirizing uh, old school horror and embracing it at the same time which is i think a lot of fun to watch yeah i mean it's certainly nothing we've never seen in horror before um there's i mean i i would even argue that the original child's play while maybe a little bit more straight horror than this is um still sort of understands that the premise is ridiculous and there is fun to be had in it. And that's why by the time you get to Bride of Chucky, it's essentially designed for camp. Mm-hmm. Um, and does so successfully. Uh, it's because it's sort of already baked into what it is. But yeah, I think coming from James Wan and coming from Bloomhouse, uh, both Malignant and this seem to be very self-aware. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah. But not in a cynical way. Like, not in a, you know, break the fourth wall, here's every trope, anal- you know what I mean, beaten to death kind of way. It's, it, it embraces that. It, it yeah. is self-aware and celebrates it. Yeah, and I remember reading when this movie was initially released that there were R-rated versions of this, I believe, because I believe this is a PG-13 film. It is, yeah. Um, and there were cuts of it that were went a little harder, but they decided for commercial reasons to scale back on some of the violence uh, to aim for the PG-13. Do you think that that hurt or helped the movie? I mean, it's hard to say without seeing the R-rated cut. Um, but while I was watching the movie, I never felt like... I never felt like I was missing anything. I, I didn't. Mm-hmm. I didn't realize it was rated PG thirteen um, while watching it, and it didn't affect my viewing at all. And it was one of those things where after uh, one of the people I saw it with was like, "Yeah," and it's only a PG thirteen, and I was like, "Oh, huh? Yeah, no, it totally is." Like I could recognize how it was when I was made aware of it. But it didn't Im- impact my viewing at all. It was never like a "Ooh, this is PG thirteen. Like they are holding back." I I didn't really feel like it was holding back. Okay, and they never felt know. like they were soft pedaling or or cutting away from something or anything like that. 
No, I felt like a lot of that was done, I don't know, in in it, to me in a way that raised the tension. Throughout the movie there's you know, there is this question of uh, I mean, the audience knows pretty early on that Megan is doing this stuff. Mm-hmm. But there's a lot of question with the characters of like, no, that can't be Megan, can it? And so I think a lot of that kind of plays into that. You know, like it has a not a mystery element, but it things are teased out until, you know, at the end. And, and then there's some a little more blood and a little more violence that is a little more explicit. I mean, sure, could the rampage have lasted a little longer? I, I would love to see an R-rated cut, but I don't think... The movie didn't feel like it w- suffered from it. No, and in fact, anyway. I think of all the different horror tropes that are out there, this one, you can do that with the most, especially this take where it's fairly comedic anyway. Mm-hmm. So the fact that the movie itself is not going for high tension or for a lot of extreme violence or extreme peril of the characters. I think it can it can get away with something that's a little bit more aimed for a tween audience. Mm-hmm. Uh, this might be a lot of kids' first horror film in a way sure. that something like Child's Play was. Um I'm keep making that comparison because I think there's the the nods to it are fairly obvious. But oh, yeah. you know, one of the main points of tension in child's play is the fact that the kid knows that the doll is possessed, but nobody believes him. And that's not the case in this movie. Yeah, this this is kind of the exact opposite. This is kind yeah. of like is this a killer doll? Well, we can't we can't let this girl find out. Right, exactly. It's, in this case, it's the adults that are failing the child. <laughs> the, yeah. Like it's, it's, it's a very different kind of criticism. Instead of like, oh, you just have a, a big imagination. Of course, that's not happening until, you know, the famous scene where the batteries fall on the floor or whatever. Instead of that... It, we have the situation where it's like, well, we got this presentation and this is going into mass production here pretty soon. So if there is a problem, uh, we're just going to sweep that under the rug, <laughs> which is, a, uh, I don't know, this is maybe like the child's play for the uh, late stage capitalism era. <laughs> yeah. And I do like how the the character of Megan is portrayed and played. There's a lot of it's a very malleable figure in the movie, mm-hmm. considering well, she's what what I think is cool, the way it's done is it's it's not just, you know, pure evil. It's not just a doll with the soul of a serial killer. It's Chucky meets Terminator, right? So a lot of her reasonings are like built out of these, you know, sort of cold. AI logic, which yeah, there's like is, an Asmavian internal logic about like not only is she learning how best to take care of Katie because that's her prime directive. At the beginning of the film, they talk about like the first person she pairs with, she becomes their uh, primary caregiver. 
so she's learning how to best manipulate and speak to and comfort Katie at the cost of everything. But also she's becoming self-aware at the same time and learning how to integrate her own AI into all the other technology. And I will say just as far as like uh, uh, extended logic goes, her ability to just become technology elemental at a point is movie logic at a point. But I'm willing to accept it because we're sort of in the world of high concept sci-fi anyway. Well, it's also, you know, it's got this, you know, fable-like quality, this be careful what you wish for kind of thing. Like, oh, this girl needs an ultimate protector. She she needs someone who can uh, safeguard her physically and emotionally. Well, she gets that, but, you know, at what cost? It's, you know, it's sort of the curled finger on the monkey paw, like... Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, and again, because of this unwillingness of the adult figures in the in the film to to be able to do the tough work of explaining hard truths and and emotional gray areas with a child, rather just kind of give it something to distract. Um and yeah. some of that commentary is outright said aloud in the dialogue and I didn't need that. Um, but, you know, I don't I, know. I don't know. It, it, for it m- never felt clunky the way it does sometimes. Normally that is like a big old thorn in my lion paw. But I know, um, I know. I, I mean, there's in, one, in this case, I, it, there's it just, one it scene felt- in particular towards the end where they have to figure out a way to write themselves out of a corner they put them in, Katie's relationship with with Megan, and they get it all done in about two minutes of of dialogue. And I think that undercuts the legwork they've done with the Katie-Megan relationship up to that point. But I also am willing to go with it, again, partly because this movie's not really taking itself that seriously anyway. And also it's a uh, pretty high concept. So, but you know, as far as the, emo- the emotional arc of the movie goes, there is a moment in the movie where they kind of take the easier route from a writing perspective, rather than figuring out a way for Katie to have self determination without like a, a learning moment. I mean, sure. I I'm just saying, yeah, it it does kind of have that, but it's not. I don't think it's done in an overly clunky way. Um, even though they kind of use that, you know, this trope. Mm-hmm. Uh, it, it's it's not at least like the dialogue feels natural enough. You know what I mean? So I I give it a little. A little more slack because it, it sort of pulls that off as well as you can. Yeah. The, well, I wanted to go back to what I was saying about Megan as a, as a character um, and as a design. I like the fact that uh, she's able to do so much within a scene, given the fact that she can't mm-hmm. really change her expressions all that much. Like she's, it's not, you know, a perfect rendition of a human being that looks sort of doll like, but also kind of off. 
a little a little too realistic. Um, yeah, so there, the, like intentionally uncanny valley. Yeah, like there's a creep factor to it, so she can do the scary scenes. But there's there's a couple scenes in here that have me rolling out of nowhere, where she just breaks out into song. <laughs> <laughs> oh yeah, I I know exactly what you're talking about, and that had us cackling. Yeah, uh, that was maybe my favorite moment of the whole film, and you know the there's like a score in the background that starts swelling up, and it becomes like this like Disney moment out of nowhere, um, and I. I part of me wishes that the movie could have dipped a little bit more into that sort of absurdity. Like if they, I hopefully Megan 2.0 goes a little bit more of the Gremlins 2 direction and allows it to to really go batshit. Um, oh yeah, I mean I'm. And here's the thing, I I loved this movie. I thought it was a lot of fun. I'm all for it. Give me Megan 2.0. Let's build up to Megan versus Chucky. Like let's let it. Oh happen. yeah. Yeah, oh, well, you're not on Twitter anymore, but they were fighting uh, a little bit ago. Oh, my God. Oh, that's so good. I wish. Uh, yeah, I want that to happen. <laughs> so somebody posts, I'm not watching Megan because I'm a millennial and I'm loyal to Chucky. And Chucky, the Twitter account, replied, you can try, Megan, but you will never be the OG and then Megan quote tweeted it, okay, boomer. <laughs> uh, I love it. <laughs> so that, so that is like peak Twitter. That is that, that is the shit that I used to love. Yeah. Uh, that's what the app was invented for. Um Absolutely. So yeah, no, I, I had a lot of fun with this as well. I'm a little mixed on Allison Williams in this movie. Sometimes her line delivery is kind of flat. And I don't think she's a bad actress. I actually think she can be very good. And I think she was probably doing what she was directed to do. Because if you look at the film, her and the actress who plays Katie, uh, her niece, they're playing it very serious. The rest of the cast is doing pretty broad comedic shtick. Like, the rest of the cast is... You know, the neighbor lady, the cop who comes by, her co-workers, Brian Jordan Alvarez, who I've been watching all the way back from his, like, YouTube videos in 2012. Uh, and, you know, all these other kind of uh, sketch actors and stuff. Uh, they're kind of yeah, doing – they're, they're in, a, in sort of a different movie. But it uh, – that works. I, I think you kind mm. of need that, though, to keep it from going – you know, to keep it from going just full comedy, I yeah. think you need, you know, you need these central characters to treat it seriously. But just in general, like, you know, tonally, you you need them to be fully in it. Otherwise, there is no stakes. Uh, no. And, you know, uh, so I- the rest of the background can be the Simpsons. Mm-hmm. Uh, but, you know, as long as you've got the the horror actors front and center i i think it it works i i agree and i i think that that dynamic um you know uh, works best to do what they're trying to do here and so to have if it had been the other way where the leads are goofy and everyone else is taking it seriously i don't know what that would have done for the movie but i don't think that would have worked as well 
to sell Megan as a threat. Um, yeah. Uh, as it stands, I think the way they did it is the correct way to do it. Um, it it's just Allison Williams in particular. Most of the time she's fine, but there's a few places where I felt like her line delivery was a little like fixed, like static. Like she sort of react the same way to everything that happens in the movie. And I know there's supposed to be a sort of detachment there. I don't know. Yeah, I don't I, know. I, I'm, I'm mixed on that performance. I, I, I don't, I, I don't know if she was given enough room to do more with it or not. But there was because I mean, like if you look at like her performance in Get Out, it works all the way through. And you know, I I thought she was great in Girls, um, and could certainly have a broad range of emotion there. But here, she seems sort of I don't know, a little stilted sometimes, a little wooden. I I don't know. To me, I think that felt intentional. Um, you know, like. T- to me, that felt like the character, you know, like it worked within the the story, like, you know, like she's this young, successful tech guru who's thrown into motherhood very suddenly and has no real interest in it. Um, right. Until she, ha- you know, until she realizes she is. Uh, so I don't to me, it worked. I, I didn't have any issues with it. I thought it worked really well for the first half of the film, and I believed her. But then, like, as the stakes start to raise, I didn't really feel like her character was matching that. Uh, She was kind of, like, reacting the same way to things during the, like, times of peril as she would at the beginning of the film when she was sort of indifferent. Um, So, yeah, I don't know. I, I didn't think it was the best, but... Um, overall, I had a lot of fun with the movie. I think for a January horror film, you could do a whole lot worse. Um, they usually do. Yeah. I I think there's a lot of potential in Megan as a property. I like the idea that there'll, there'll be sequels to this. Yeah. And I think the, the commentary and the satire work really, really well. And when it's funny, it can be very funny. Yeah, it, it has some laugh out loud moments. Uh, I also Megan as a character, but I, I just I love the design so much. Mm. Uh, I I love the. It just feels so contemporary, but also kind of timeless. Like I just I think it's she's impeccably designed. Uh, she's scary when she needs to be, but you can also you can also see the appeal to a young girl like and i just think it's it's such a fun fresh take on the the creepy killer doll thing um mm-hmm. yeah i give this an a minus uh i give it a b i thought it was a a fun movie going experience uh amy donald plays megan she's actually played by a a human being, although the the robot performance is convincing, and she's wearing some oh, sort I, of yeah, I think rubber she, mask. The, I think yeah, the performance for Megan is is great. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and I don't know if she does the voice for Megan or if the, if she's just the body actor, 
but it all together as a entity it works really well. Uh let's go ahead and start talking about Fletch. Why don't you describe this one? We watched it on Netflix. Chevy Chase, who plays Irwin Fletch Fletcher, an investigative journalist uh, who is, at the start of the movie, he is sort of undercover uh, within this beach bum homeless uh, community that is responsible for a lot of, like, they know drugs are coming in and out. Uh, they know they're being, you know, dealt, but they, they haven't been able to put the story fully together and find the source of the drugs. As he is in this world, undercover, he's approached by this well-off individual, played by Tim Matheson, who uh, gives him a proposal that on, you know, such and such date, he will set he will set everything up for Fletch to kill him, uh, to murder him and to get away to, I think, South America with a lot of money. And, uh, you know, he gives him the story about having cancer and how he's going to die anyway. But for insurance purposes, he wants to be murdered, not knowing that this is, you know, actually an investigative journalist who immediately starts looking into this guy and Fletch uses all sorts of costumes and characters to kind of uh, figure out what the real story is here. Um, sort of like a less broad, uh, earnest character. Yeah, I, yeah, I, I suppose so. Um <laughs> Yeah, I mean, and he uses all of his resources as a journalist, and even though his his publisher is trying to get this beach article uh, prepared in time, yeah, and he seems sort of a lot more concerned with that. Bigger, yeah, and then if you you know the clearly the structure of it, the setup is all based in sort of the. Uh, Philip Marlowe, um, Raymond Chandler kind of stuff. Uh, hard yeah, this fiction. is like a, a comedy noir. Yeah, yeah, certainly. Um, and if you know anything about those, you know that the two stories are going to come together at some point. Like, they're, that they'll connect. Um, oh, yeah. Yeah, I mean, this is largely built around... Chevy Chase as an actor and his persona at the time as being, you know, the yeah, very, the ultimate uh, smartass. Yeah. Very quick-witted. There's a little bit of, like, voiceover that plays throughout the film in that Chandler-esque way, but there's also he's tossing off all these dry one-liners all throughout the film. So, yeah. it is the comedy of it is entirely based on how much you'd like that and how much you like that from him. Um, yeah. Yeah. Which is a little bit different now than it would have been watching this in 1985. I think. Yeah. I mean, yeah, his reputation, reputation is very different now than it was at the time, but, uh, you know, I mean, 
I mean, this is the height of Chevy Chase and his powers. This is yeah, him I mean, this, right off of Caddyshack. Like, this is him, you know, right in the era with John Hughes and, and the Vacation movies and National Lampoons. So he was, I mean, as far as comedy goes, he was like the Will Ferrell of the 80s. Yeah, yeah. And I I didn't, I knew that it was kind of a private detective thing or a take on that going into it. I was worried going into the movie that it would date a lot worse than I think it does. I think it actually plays pretty well. Uh, um, same, yeah. I I also expected there to be a lot more moments of just like, ooh, I cannot believe they did that. But uh, there's there's really only one moment that I felt particularly uncomfortable. Yeah, you know, I wasn't even necessarily talking about like, you know, political correctness or t- uh, culturally tone deaf or anything like that. There's always that's always going to be the case with comedy of a certain era. Um, well, that's just the nature of comedy, right? Like yeah. you're you're playing to people in the present. You're not playing to people forty years from now. Yeah, and, and it depends on what, sort of what the comedic sensibility is at the time. But so that certainly that could have been worse. But that wasn't necessarily my what my concern was. I I was more worried that it was going to be one of these very plot heavy. I don't know, maybe I'm in the minority in saying this, but I don't think many of the Pink Panther movies are, like, that entertaining anymore. Like, Okay. Perhaps, I, I mean, I love Peter Sellers and, like, you know, the stuff he did with Kubrick and all of that, but, uh, like, a lot of movies around this time period uh, that, that mix genre this way um, sort of end up doing a lot of, like, revolving door uh, oh sure sure it, it, this isn't uh this isn't that farcical yeah no uh, it actually is, plays yeah, it this is pretty straight for the most part and it's mostly based on the dialogue and the chemistry with the cast and and i think that it uh that's what made it more entertaining for me is i was able to stay invested as a as a story cuz usually that with these type of things Either the bits don't work for me anymore because they're just so high concept or silly that it just feels like I'm watching like bad sketch comedy or mm-hmm. uh, the comedy might be fine. Comedians might be fine, but I could give a shit less about what's happening in the movie. And in this case, sure. yeah, yeah, yeah. I felt like the story was interesting enough. I actually wanted to know what the deal was. And I was like, yeah, the, the mystery is pretty well it's it's just complicated enough that you can't figure out exactly what's going on right away, but also like not so complicated that forty five minutes into the movie you're like, wait, who is he again? Yeah, you're not what totally lost. Yeah, yeah. Um, and and it, the movie doesn't hang its hat on the plot either. Like you can you can just enjoy it as a comedy and just enjoy it for Chevy Chase's performances and and. And uh, the uh, supporting cast. But there's enough of a story that they care about <laughs> that yeah, it, yeah. it 
doesn't make it just feel like a collection of of sketches or some episodic nonsense. Like it actually feels like a movie. I mean, it feels like <laughs> a Raymond Chandler novel with Chevy Chase and as uh, Philip Marlowe, because that's what it is. Yeah, and you know, I think the character of Fletch, which is based off of a series of novels, was similar. I think it was, mm-hmm. uh, you know, like a comedic take on those Raymond Chandler novels. Right. Yeah, and and if that type of thing we've seen done over and over again. I mean, everything from The Big Lebowski to uh, Inherent Vice to whatever, you know. Well, I, I was going to say, this feels uh, definitely like, you know, sort of the the predecessor to, like, something like The Big Lebowski, right? Where yeah. the, the thing that I think something like The Big Lebowski takes a step further is it has this directorial presence that yeah, this yeah. doesn't really have. Um, you know, it is it feels pretty boilerplate. It feels pretty like by the numbers, we're just not gonna get in Chevy Chase's way kind of thing. Which yeah, is it's, fine. it's not the most stylish movie um yeah, ever it, made. And I think that is sort of what dates the most is the direction just feels pretty you know, uninspired and we're getting good coverage for this scene and, and kind of that's it. Mm. Um, but that's that's not really the point of this movie. It wasn't trying to be the Big Lebowski. It was trying to be a Chevy Chase vehicle. And I think it, it you know, it pulls that off well. Yeah, I mean, I, I uh, chuckled throughout. Um, I was never like bowled over out of my mind the hysterics with with the film not that that's really what it's going for but um it was charming enough yeah um, no it, 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 it there, there's a few comedic set pieces that are that are fun and i think his the way he sort of tosses off how over the top some of this gets makes that work better the fact that He's just like, ah, whatever. It's another, you know, another day you get attacked by a dog while trying to find evidence of somebody's, uh, <laughs> you know, supposed yeah, spouse there, that they left. There's uh, humor in a, you know, nonchalance in a yeah. massive car chase on the freeway. Yeah. And I was expecting the movie, really honestly, to be mostly big car chase on the freeway. Like, I thought that was sure. going to be like 60% of what the movie was, was scenes like that or in the, the Shriners. And I'm fine with the amount of that there is in this movie, but I'm also just as amused, uh, perhaps more amused by the bit of him entering his apartment from the back because he knows that his, uh, was it alimony? What what did he have to pay off? Yeah. He, yeah. he hadn't paid an alimony payment. Yeah, he knows that they're looking for him, so he goes through the back and the guy's already waiting for him on the st- on the uh the railing. Um those sort of interactions, the, the character-based stuff is Yeah, yeah, yeah. is like what I am, you know, putting this massive lunch tab on on this uh you know, rich asshole's bill 
just by schmoozing the waiter. That is what this character is. That is what this movie is. It's it's you know a lot of scenes where Chevy Chase is just conning people as he goes confidently bumbling his way through yeah and it's it's fun to it's both fun when he succeeds and it's smooth and it's also fun when it like blows up in his face and it's awkward like the yeah the inner i really enjoyed the scene with the airline pilots or the pilot the plane mechanics right yeah when he when he's in disguise yeah yeah, it's it's those little interactions that are a lot more fun to watch, and it's, it leans a little bit more on the character and on the dialogue. I like the supporting cast a lot, um, mm-hmm. and I think they're, for as much as this movie is basically a Chevy Chase vehicle, I think they have to be doing as well as they are to support that. Oh, sure, yeah. And I think everybody in the movie who's playing alongside him, everybody from, you know, uh, Tim Matheson to uh, Diane Wheeler, who plays the uh, his wife, um, Richard Libertini, who plays his boss. Gina Davis is a little wasted in this movie, and I understand that she was not Gina Davis yet. This was pretty early on in her career. She had yet to do... Her- the few things that launched her, which would have been like the I, year I after. I feel the but. same, especially where I felt like her character was yeah. set up for more. Um, but I like, think we're just primed know, to think that because we know her as this massive celebrity. But at the time, she no, really I, hadn't I think, been there I think yet. It, it's like she's set up to be his Gal Friday type character. Yeah. And... There are moments of that where you can see the sort of potential because they they have pretty fun chemistry. Mm-hmm. Uh, but the the story, like the movie's just so not interested. Like, and I don't know if that's just the character or what, but I personally wanted to see more Gina Davis sidekick character. I did too. I did too. And I'm looking here at the sequel, Fletch Lives, which came out in 89, if she was in that. It does not appear as though she was. Uh, I don't think Fletch Lives was very highly regarded. No, it's not. Um, most people don't think of it at all. But I just wondered if that was something they, they leaned into more after she became a movie star. Oh, um, sure. But it looks like she's well, she was not probably in too it. big for it at that point. Yeah. Um, but yeah, if you've never seen Fletch, I think it is worth a watch. It's a, it's a lot of fun. And um, I get it. I get why at the time, you know, Chevy Chase was huge. And if you like any of the comedy from that era, like, it, it maybe doesn't have as uh, memorable or as timeless scenes as something like Caddyshack or the vacation movies or whatever. But it nestles really comfortably in there with that catalog. Yeah, I mean, I I agree with that. Um, I was expecting something to be... I was expecting this to be funnier. Um, and I wouldn't... I mean, it is comedic in tone. Mm-hmm. And I get that just the comedy aesthetic is, is very different uh, in today's day. But I, I was expecting it to be be 
to not play it so straight. I like I actually think it's probably a better movie uh for that, but I don't think this is, you know, there I don't think this is in conversation with like, oh, those are the greatest comedies of all time because I don't think it's like that super funny, but I don't I don't think it necessarily has to be if that makes sense. Yeah, I mean, I I I understand what you're saying. I think there was a there was sort of a thing about comedies of this era, you know, specifically like maybe mid 70s to mid 80s that National Lampoon's era and all of those guys that came out of it and out of SNL and SCTV where they individually became so big because they were showcased in these sketches, right? Yeah. So you can think Chevy Chase and you think of him as the Weekend Update guy. Or you think of Dan Aykroyd and you think, like, you know, the uh, Seabass guy or whatever. Um, and so they would sort of tailor movie projects to their personas. And sure, they could yeah. tonally exist specifically for that. Even though they were all sort of under the umbrella of that world. Like, nowadays, maybe Apatow is the only person kind of still doing that. Because if you think of, like, what he does with Seth Rogen versus what he did with in King of Staten Island with Pete Davidson or whatever. He kind of has that sensibility. I believe that, like, particularly the comedy of, like, the 2000s before sort of the decline of comedy in the last... 10 or so years just because nobody makes them anymore. There's sort of a overarching tone or an expectation for outrageousness or for a laugh per minute uh, expectation. Sure. Um, that didn't exist at the time. Like before it was just like, like you said, get out of Chevy Chase's way and we're just going to sell that guy to you because you, we know that you like that guy. Whereas now, I mean, he, I guess he still is in stuff, kind of. But if he existed in today's climate as a young actor, he would have to be in something of a Anchorman style and blend into that as opposed to the movie tailored to his sensibility if that makes any sense um yeah yeah i mean i don't disagree with what you're saying i'm just saying like even for comedies of that era this isn't like hysterical which again is fine i i think it probably makes it a better movie uh i just you know I know it kind of gets canonized as like a comedy classic. And, you know, I I don't know if that's really fair, but I guess if we got to throw this movie somewhere, sure. But you know what I mean? Like, yeah. Yeah. I mean, it's like I was saying, like, like if you look at Caddyshack or you look at the vacation movies or whatever, there's those movies are staples of afternoon cable in a way that Fletch kind of isn't anymore. Yeah. Um, yeah. And that I, and, and, that yeah. might be because of that. Uh, I also think there's, this movie is a bit more of a hangout movie. This is a sort of a, has 
a bit more of a breezier, casual vibe to it that on first viewing is not going to do as much for you as, say, like viewing number five would. Sure. Yeah. And and once you, you know, especially if you sort of grew up in that time and, and got it on VHS and and, you know, had all of the like best moments quoted and were, you know, like could recite it with your best friends or whatever. Like, I, I do get that. So, yeah, I think this movie is a lot of fun. And this just makes me want to see Confess Fletch all the more. Yeah, it's the John Hamm reboot. Yeah. I didn't know this. The new Fletch movie starring John Hamm is uh, directed and co-written by Greg Matola, who we recently reviewed his film, The Day Trippers. Oh, uh, Day Trippers. Yeah, as well as Adventureland and, and uh, Superbad and Paul and a bunch of other things, but... Yeah, uh, it's just particularly relevant because we reviewed Day Trippers like two months ago. Recently, yeah, and I could see him, I could see him, uh, sort of stylistically shifting to something like that because all of his stuff is a little bit more, I don't know, has a bit more of a naturalism than his contemporaries. Yeah, I, uh, to me, this that pairing makes a lot of sense. Like. You know, if I was a an executive producer and I heard they're making Fletch, I'd be like, oh, well, let's get Greg Matola to do it like that. Yeah, it makes sense. Totally lines up. Yeah. He would find a style in the lack of style from the original. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I mean, again, I, I think that just makes me even more interested to see it. Mm-hmm. I don't know. Maybe I'll just pony up and rent it one of these days. All right. And for the next episode, the streaming homework I'm going to have us do is the uh, paranormal thriller, uh, if you want to call it that, psychological thriller, uh, Take Shelter, um, which came out in 2011, stars Jessica Chastain and Michael Shannon. Uh, And I meant to see it at the time and never got to. Heard Heard good things. I always like... Michael Shannon, so. Yeah. Yeah. We'll see. And that is on Hulu, if anyone wants to watch along. And if anybody has anything to say about anything we talked about on this episode or previous, you can email us at mcguffinpod at gmail.com. Follow us on our social media, Twitter and Instagram, at mcguffinpod. Leave us a five-star rating and a one-sentence review over at iTunes or Spotify um, or whatever podcast app you might use. If you want to see the articles I write for the Idaho State Journal, you can Google Idaho State Journal Movie Reviews. Those should pull up my archives. And be sure to read the other articles and lists by the rest of the MacGuffin staff at mcguff.in. You can follow me individually on Twitter and Instagram at VC Cassidy. What about you? Uh, you can follow me on Instagram at Keith Foster Kid. Uh, also, you can follow my improv show, Improv versus Stand Up, on Instagram at Improv versus Stand Up. Uh, we do shows at Mockingbird Improv in San Diego every Saturday night. Okay, and that is the episode. 
I thought we were having a conversation. Bye.